Sir Alper in the 200 Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It is his weekly Monday appearance. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com. His name is Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he does each week, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball. In this particular case, of note, Rob Manfred is the new commissioner of Major League Baseball. He uh, happened to make over the weekend some comments with regard to the run environment in baseball currently and how it might be altered, proposing, for example, a possible ban of the shift. Of the shift, Dave Cameron discusses why such a decision uh, would probably be short-sighted. Red Sox Zips projections were released at the uh, site of Fangraphs on Monday. Mookie Betts, number one comparable player, uh, same age, is Andrew McCutcheon. That is, as they say, praising with great praise. Praising with great praise. Also, the Dan Duquette situation. He's being courted by Toronto, according to reporters of some repute, uh, but not according to Orioles owner Peter Angelos. Dave Cameron summarizes the situation for those people uh, like myself who are too lazy to have read about it and notes probably uh, the most curious aspect of the story as a whole. So I think the fun thing is, you know, Duquette was basically out of baseball for a decade. When the Orioles hired him, it was only after basically every other candidate in baseball told them no thanks. It's Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. See if you say that at the end. Yeah, I was gonna. Yeah, I was gonna add that. I, was, I, was, yeah. I assume it will be a pleasure to speak yeah. with you. That might be a poor assumption. You doing some manner of uh, media appearance? I finished my media appearance mannerism. Oh, okay. Where, where, where are you yeah. gonna be on? Where can people see? I, you? I, well, they if they have a time machine, they could go back mm-hmm. and watch MLB Network uh, at two fifteen Eastern on Monday, mm-hmm. which is you know. Uh, probably about 10 hours after the, the, this pod is posted. Yeah, that's Or right. maybe 10 hours before this pod is posted. Right. Yeah, so they, uh, so they go, uh, sometimes that stuff, do they not have a repeat? Uh, they might. I don't know. I don't yeah. have cable, so maybe I, a clip. I am. Maybe there's a clip available online. You can go to MLB.com video section and search for my name and, uh, and maybe it will pop up. All right. Probably not, but. About what were you speaking? Wait, wait, was this, uh, Brian Kenny or someone else? Yeah, MLB Now, hosted by Brian Kenny with Ken Rosenthal and uh, Rich Waltz and somebody else whose voice I recognize, but whose name I didn't get. So, right. sorry, person whose name I, I don't know. With the, um, um, not listening, by the way. Not, not listening, that person, whoever it is. Yeah, um, right, yeah. I just apologize to a person who has no chance no, that they no. have any, any no, chance. To not offended in the first place. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, well, about what were you speaking? Uh, so we talked a little bit about my Mookie Betts Steven Strasburg trade proposal, and then my Nori Aoki Nick Markikis uh, player comparison, and then briefly on Max Scherzer's contract. And by oh, okay. briefly, I mean like with 10 seconds to go, they said, what do you think? <laughs> what, did, what did you think in 10 seconds? Uh, you know, pretty good deal, a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good deal for everyone involved, do you think? Well, better for Scherzer. Uh, you know, I think the long version, if I would have had, you know, uh, a time to expand my thoughts, I would have said something along the lines of, it can work for the Nationals as long as they raise their payroll. Like if you don't want to lose Strasburg and Harper and Desmond and all these guys because the owners in a year say, "Well, we have given all our money to Max Scherzer. Sorry, you can't keep all your good twenty-something guys. You have to pay this, you know, thirty-two-year-old pitcher instead." Uh, but if the learners just say, "Eh, 
we don't care about making a profit anymore. Have as much money as you want. Uh, then nothing wrong with adding Max Scherzer to your rotation. You know, at one point, I think uh, Kyla McDaniel reported that the Yankees felt that they could have something in the vicinity of like a $500 million payroll and still make a profit. Yeah. Make a profit. It's probably true. Yeah. Okay. What is, I mean, what is, what do you think is like the average break-even point for a major league organization? And I don't know. And then, you know, like the nationals specifically, if you were just, I, it, uh, I will assume that you are speculating wildly, but yeah. it's an educated I, I speculation. Am. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely speculating wildly. So I think we know that Major League Baseball as an entity is going to make about $9 billion in revenue this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you split that 30 ways, and obviously you shouldn't split that 30 ways because the Marlins and Yankees aren't going to make the same amount of money, that's $3 billion, and no, that's not, not, it's not correct. Uh, so if you take $9 billion divided by 30, <laughs> that's $300 million per team. Yeah. Uh, I can't, I can't do math. Uh, but that's just straight revenues, right? So like, um, if we said like maybe a high end team would be in the four to five hundred million dollar revenue range, well you still have to pay for you know stadiums and you know all you have to service your debt, you have to you know front office employees, you know concession people like there's uh, expenses beyond just your ball players. Most teams try to spend or the target is supposed to be somewhere around half of your revenues uh, should go to the major league players and then half should go to everything else, including making a profit. So if you're you know a high end team and you have a four or five hundred million dollar revenue. Uh, potential like probably the Yankees do, uh, then maybe you're looking at like 250 to 300 million as kind of like your break-even point uh, in terms of where you're probably not making a lot of money and and not putting a lot of money in the bank anymore, which I think is about what we see, right? The Dodgers are around 250 million, the Yankees are you know in the mid two 200s, I think. Um, so that kind of lines up with what we would expect. Uh, if, if you're the Nationals, maybe you're closer to the average or maybe slightly above. Maybe you're a $350, $400 million uh, revenue team, and so maybe you could afford to make you know a $200 million payroll without losing money. Um, but, you know, it depends on TV contracts and obviously the mass and dispute going on right now. Maybe we have to adjust that down, and the Nationals are closer to $150 million break even. But I think most teams could probably run a payroll between $125 and $150 million without uh, – severe financial crisis. The Rays and Mays and a few others might be the exceptions, but most teams, I think, could probably be in that $150 million range without their owners, you know, filing bankruptcy. Is, um, uh, some teams, uh, well, I guess I, the, it's not necessarily, if you were to sort all of the teams by revenue, that would not necessarily be the exact order of teams by profit, I would assume. Absolutely not. I think uh, for a long stretch, the Marlins were one of the five or six most profitable teams in Major League Baseball when they were uh, running tiny payrolls uh, and not trying to win. Uh, you can absolutely maximize – well, maybe not maximize. You can get yourself into the high profit tier uh, by being a low-cost, low-revenue team who doesn't spend anything on your payroll – or you can be a high high revenue team or a high profit team by being the Yankees and being you know the the kind of iconic franchise in sports that sells uh, you know more tickets for more money and more sponsorships and all the things that they have access to because they're the Yankees. Right, but it's easier it's easier just to ignore all that. Yeah, it's easier to be cheap. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. I think, and this is we see this in business. I think if you look at you know most of the companies in America, uh, they're probably more along the lines of cost cutting and trying to you know ship production overseas and um, you know, run a lean staff, and uh, I think you know what most companies in America do to try and make profit is cut costs, not necessarily raise the profit margin. Right. Um, uh, the, I would assume that the Tigers uh, are a team. They they seem to spend a lot, and I'm curious about what their revenues would be. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of an interesting case in that Detroit is not a prosperous city at the moment, uh, and uh, you know they have been in a, a top tier payroll team for quite a while. 
Uh, I don't think we've ever heard the Tigers come out and say they're losing money, but they are financed by Mike Illich, who uh, personally has a ton of money and uh, probably no no shortage of uh, cash on hand that he can burn through. And I think there are some franchises who have said, you know what, we don't necessarily care about making a profit. If we lose $10 million or $20 million, that's okay. Uh, I'll just finance the losses because this is why I bought the team is to try and win. Uh, but, you know, I think most ownership groups are not like that. I wouldn't be surprised if Illich has actually run some negative uh, balances in some years in his pursuit of a World Series. Because, uh, I, I mean, as, as good as the Tigers have been, this is not a team that has the revenue capabilities of, say, the Yankees or Red Sox or the Phillies or the Dodgers. Yeah. I will, I will also say I, I had never actually seen an image of Mike Illich. He has a curious head of hair for a 90-year-old person. Um, in that he has some? Well, yes. It's also quite dark. Oh, really? uh, it's also a bit bushy too. If you if you're familiar with um, American singer songwriter and producer Barry Manilow, uh, it's a similar. Uh, yeah, that, you named one of the five American singer songwriters <laughs> who I am familiar with. Good job. Uh, it's a similar head of hair. Okay, um, uh, maybe in addition to owning Domino's, he owns uh, you know Just for Men. Yeah, right. Can and we I, speculate. I, hey, listen. Far be it from me. I, I subscribe to the notion that whatever works is the, is what you should do, provided you're not hurting anyone. Uh, I mean, owning Little Caesars might be might count as an instance of hurting people. Oh yeah, I guess I was naming the wrong terrible chain pizza place. What sorry about that, Domino's people. Oh yeah, sorry. Sorry, I'm yeah, I'm sure they're I'm sure they're blameless and without blame. <laughs> right, <laughs> they're super offended by being compared to Little Caesars, which yeah. you know it's all kind of terrible. Right. Um, Okay. Uh, all right. Well, yeah, that's just, that's a little aside. Uh, didn't plan on it, but uh, interesting stuff nonetheless. Uh, what shall we talk about? Oh, yes. Uh, well, you mentioned the Red Sox, and um, and you mentioned Mookie Betts specifically. I want to discuss that in a second. Uh, before we get to that, can you can you summarize? Because I saw today at MLB Trade Rumors that the Dan the courting of Dan Duquette by Toronto uh, from Baltimore is over. It, it, by, by some, according to some people. Including, I think, Baltimore owner Peter Angelos. It never began. Uh, I don't. Yeah, under, Peter I don't, Angelos is lying. Right. Okay. I don't the, understand the it. I never. I never really cared enough to read about it. But listening to it is is a lot easier. Uh, will you Will you summarize it briefly? Yeah. So basically, we don't actually know that it's over. I mean, so this is a, a report uh, in a string of reports that have proven to be maybe not entirely true. Uh, this one might be, who knows. Uh, but the Blue Jays have very clearly targeted Duquette and earlier had targeted Kenny Williams, the uh, president of the White Sox. Uh, the White Sox did the smart thing and said, absolutely not, we're not we're not interested in this. Kenny Williams came out and said, I'm not interested in this. And it went nowhere very quickly, and they just you know, threw a giant uh, blanket over the whole thing, and, and they went away. The Orioles did not do that. Dan Duquette has kind of flirted with, uh, the possibility and has apparently made it clear to the Orioles that he would like to take the position while they have said, well, you're not allowed to go. But Duquette has not come out and made any kind of public statement. Uh, Angelos has made a few public statements about uh, Duquette not being allowed to leave, but then, uh, you know, pretty decent sources seem to indicate that the Orioles have then proceeded to negotiate with the Blue Jays, undermining Angelos' statements, uh, where they would allow him to leave for significant compensation in return. Uh, it appears that their asking price is just too high, but, you know, this is certainly not the first time where we've seen posturing where someone says, I absolutely am not going to allow this guy to leave, and then they just privately say, unless you give me these three great players, and eventually they settle on two players instead of three or one and a half players or something. Uh, you know, so I think I would not say this is over until Dan Duquette comes out and says, I'm withdrawing, I'm not interested, I'm going to honor my contract, I've signed an extension, something along those lines. Until Duquette 
actually says that he's not going to Toronto, I would think there's a decent chance he's going to Toronto. Uh, okay, with regard to Dan Duquette, here's a general sketch of his career. I'd appreciate it if you'd fill in any relevant blanks. Uh, he was the GM of the Red Sox. I know that. Uh, he made insensitive comments about Roger Clemens. He, 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 he ran the Expos. You don't forget about his tenure right, in Montreal. Right, he was in Montreal before that. He, when, when they were quite good. When actually. they were quite good, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a team that uh, uh, also the Tiger GM, uh, Dave Dombrowski, was in charge of at one point. Correct. They, yeah. had, lots of, they had lots of Ds up there. Yeah. The, uh, that's a good point. Um, the, uh, 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 then he, right, he was a Red Sox GM. He made insensitive comments. He was uh, off the... Uh, sort of baseball radar for about 10 years. He became the GM of the Orioles, and they've become uh, better, certainly, uh, uh, during his tenure. And that's that's what I know. Yeah, so I think the fun thing is, you know, Duquette was basically out of baseball for a decade. When the Orioles hired him, it was only after basically every other candidate in baseball told them no thanks. They went after basically every assistant GM or current GM who could possibly be available, uh, all of the names that everyone wanted to interview, and every single one said, meh, I don't even want to talk to you. The Orioles' reputation was terrible, and they had no ability to uh, interview or hire from the crop of uh, candidates that everyone else wanted to hire from. So they turned to the guy who no one in baseball wanted, and they said, okay, well, if no one in baseball will work for us, let's go get Dan Duquette, who's not in baseball, wants a job in baseball, is not going to be nearly as picky. Uh, since then, the Orioles have been really good, and Duquette's image has obviously been rehabbed. So this has been maybe the perfect fit for an, an organization that didn't wasn't wanted, uh, hired a, a person who wasn't wanted, and now both have uh, succeeded tremendously over the last few years. I do think it's a little bit interesting that the Blue Jays are so set on Duquette as their guy, uh, considering that you know a couple of years ago he could have been had for a song, essentially, and now we are thinking after a couple of really good years, and certainly he's done a nice job with Baltimore, that he is so much more qualified than anyone else to do this job that the Blue Jays are considering giving up several notable players uh, in exchange to pay him a lot of money to do this job when, you know, there are probably some other qualified people who might not cost the same uh, in acquisition costs. Right. Now, this is essentially like the reliever, right, who is like a guy who could throw – 95, but for whatever reason he doesn't have command and he's just like a waiver pickup and then he turns into a closer and then his value all of a sudden uh, has increased significantly. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I guess one of the things is we want to be a little bit careful here because this is certainly not something that we have really good data on where we can say this is the replacement level CEO available to baseball teams. Like, right. you know, we don't we don't know and we don't really know all that the Blue Jays would have Duquette do. We don't know how much offer him maybe you know uh maybe he really is specifically tailored for their market the best and there's no other good candidates uh but it seems like given the proliferation of really smart guys working in baseball with business backgrounds that dan duquette's probably not the only candidate right or at least he shouldn't be maybe yeah yeah i guess it is strange if 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 it really is true that they're sort of uh uh fixated on him uh you know what why that is necessarily Yeah, agreed. Okay, uh, that's good. I feel like I know more about the Duquette thing. So uh, a lot of it is uh, sort of to be determined, it seems like. Yeah, I would say my expectation is that he'll end up in Toronto probably before the start of the year. Okay. And how would he work with uh, the, the Greek the Greek men up there? A hmm. Greek person. Anthony Anthopoulos? Alex Anthopoulos? Alex Anthopoulos. Yeah, well, he would become his boss. So, uh, you know, I don't know that he would have to work with him as much as he would just tell him 
you know, he's a CEO, he would be the CEO. So he would say, you know, here's how much your payroll is. Uh, he'd probably be somewhat involved in baseball operations, but Anthopoulos would, you know, still probably be running the day-to-day minutia and Duquette would take kind of a higher level position. Uh, and, you know, I think at that point, once you're the CEO of the entire organization, you're dealing with a lot of business things, you're dealing with a lot of revenue aspects. It's not just making trades anymore. Right. Okay, uh, we did that. Uh, a team that uh, of which Dan Duquette used to be the GM. Also, the Zips projections came out today. Also, you mentioned uh, one of this team's notable players. In that post about Steven, uh, Steven Strasburg, it's the Boston Red Sox. The Boston Red Sox. Our team yes. and their Zips projections are out. Uh, Dustin Joy, uh, probably not surprisingly, receives the most encouraging projection. Or maybe surprisingly, we can discuss that in a second. Mookie Betts, though, receives the second... Uh, the second highest war projection from Zips. Um, he's uh, all signs point to the fact that he's good. Yeah, I mean, I will say so. Zips likes him a little bit less than Steamer. I think uh, you know we've had the Steamer projections up on the site for a couple months now, and uh, people have been bristling at the Steamer forecast for Mookie, which I think calls for a 118 WRC plus and something like four and a half wins over a full season. Zips has him as a you know basically a league average hitter, slightly above, I think like a 104. Uh, OPS plus, which is, you know, probably closer to a 106 WRC plus once you factor in bets is on base skills. Right. Uh, but, you know, uh, certainly worse than what Steamer's projecting, although it's almost all BABIP. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I think a three win player over 600 plate appearances. So it, it, you know, it says Zips thinks slightly less is maybe a little bit down on bets relative to Steamer. And if, if people think the Steamer projection is too inflated, maybe the Zips one is uh, more realistic and more palatable to their liking. But I will think that even this is the most negative projection we've seen on bets, and it still thinks he's an above-average major league player as a 22-year-old. Uh, this guy might be pretty good. 22-year-old fifth-round draft pick, who yeah. who only appeared among Baseball America's Top 100 last year, and he was 75th. I mean, that's usually a player. I was talking about this with Kyle McDaniel on Friday. That's usually a player uh, historically who produces four or five wins over the first six years of his career. If if bets were to to match his prediction after hitting a two war last year, he'd basically be there already, or above. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that if bets had not lost his rookie eligibility, he would have ranked significantly higher this year, probably in the top twenty, maybe in the top ten, depending on how aggressive right. they were uh, in reevaluating his his ceiling. But I think bets is one of these kind of polarizing prospects, and every time we mention his name on Twitter or write an article about him, there's a wave of prospect writers or prospect guys who come at us and start yelling about ceiling and saying, this guy's not Addison Russell, this guy's not whoever, because he's 5'9", 160 pounds, he's not going to hit for a ton of power, and he doesn't play him shortstop, and he doesn't, you know, uh, he's not going to, you know, be your prototypical kind of franchise star, uh, to which I reply, who cares? I, you know, I am of the opinion that... Uh, Upside or perceived ceiling is probably the most overrated aspect of prospect analysis out there. Right. And I think, you know, if Mookie Betts turns into an above-average player uh, or is already an above-average player and can be that for six or seven or ten, fifteen years, uh, he's got a chance to have a really nice career uh, and be better than almost every super-hyped, high-ceiling guy. And I would take Betts over almost almost all of the guys who are, maybe not Chris Bryant, but, you know, even Addison Russell, I think it's not so clear to me that Russell's a better player long-term than Mookie Betts, which I think a lot of the prospect crowd would um, disagree with. Uh, Looking over his profile, and I guess it it becomes very clear when you do sort of examine uh, the Zips projections, he, uh, his profile is very similar to Dustin Bedroyas. Yeah. uh, In a lot of ways. They're, they're both undersized. 
uh, neither can play shortstop. I mean, Pedroia did as a minor leaguer, and he never yeah, really. Yeah, I think he actually played in a couple innings there as a major leaguer. They they let him play a few games at shortstop in the yeah. big leagues. And I don't think he was necessarily a disaster there, but right, um, he fits better at second base. Right, and Betts probably does too. In kind of like the Brandon Phillips mold, where you could say this guy could play short, but he's pretty good at second, so let's just leave him there. Right, and uh, you're talking about uh, advanced feel for hitting, advanced plate discipline. Uh, not necessarily great projection for power. Obviously, Pedroia had some above-average seasons, um, by that in that regard. But mostly, mostly just sort of uh, athleticism, baseball IQ, and it adds up to something that's pretty fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I think Betts is kind of the example of the kind of player that Fangraphs has been advocating for for quite a while. Uh, in that he's not a specialist. This is not a guy who's going to lead the league in probably anything. Uh, you know, maybe he'll win the batting title a year or two or something, but he's not ever going to be the fastest guy in the league. He's never going to be at the most, you know, home runs in the league. He's, he's never going to be, this guy is the best at this thing in baseball. He's just above average at absolutely everything. Uh, and, you know, maybe even, you know, pretty good at a few things to the point where the overall package is, you know, maybe one of the top 30 or 40 players in baseball in his prime for a sustained period of time. With some, you know, low risk for a prospect. I think as, as much as we talk about, uh, or as much as, you know, there's conversations about players upside, there seems to not be as much conversation about risk avoidance on the prospect side of things where, uh, I think a, a guy like Mookie Betts, certainly there's examples of guys like this who have not fit, not panned out. I think Dustin Ackley was probably a similar kind right, of well, player. Kylie, coming yeah. Kylie invoked yeah. uh, Dustin Ackley immediately after his... Yeah, I mean, this, this, so this is the similar kind of player. Line drive, gap power, you know, good plate discipline, uh, hasn't turned into what he expected, and, and Ackley, I think, has been considered a little bit of a bust. But still, if you look at Ackley's career, he's basically averaged about two wins a season, and this is the downside, right? Like, this is uh, this is the worst-case scenario that everyone points to. Is still roughly a league-average player, and if the Mariners hadn't signed Robinson Cano, uh, maybe Ackley would still be playing second base. He was a fine defensive second baseman. There was no need... need to move him off the position. So if we think that, you know, Betts could play above average major league second base and be a league average hitter, and that's the downside, uh, this is a pretty good asset. You know, we might talk about uh, suppressed offense numbers uh, in the game today. Um, Ackley is, is, is a curious example of that. Of course, part of it comes from playing in, in Petco, um, not Petco, Safeco. Safeco, yeah. Um, he, he had, uh, in over 500 plate appearances last year, had a 293 on base percentage and still managed with a roughly league average line overall. Yeah, I think uh, people, uh, I don't mean this to be a, like harsh, but people kind of suck about adjusting for context. Like, <laughs> it, it's, it seems like people are just not very good at remembering that offense is way down, especially on the West Coast, especially in Seattle, uh, where these parks are playing really pitcher friendly and strikeouts are way up and like a 290 on base percentage might used to, you know, 10 years ago meant you shouldn't even play. Now a 290 on base percentage with speed and some defense and, you know, uh, enough power to not be, you know, Juan Pierre means you're a decent everyday major league player, even in left field. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those home run totals in, in Safeco are, are really great. I was looking at, uh, Nick Franklin's like adjusted lines from recent years too. And of course he, he had a rough season last year. But he'll probably be starting for Tampa this year, which is another park that suppresses offense. You know, he didn't get, doesn't get a break in terms of his raw numbers, but he actually was not. Even last year, when uh, he was supposedly posting, you know, I mean, when he was posting, you know, ho- horrific-looking raw numbers, he still, you know, wasn't a. He still actually wasn't a total disaster somehow. 
Um, yeah, no, I think hitting in Seattle, really hard. Hitting yeah. in San Diego, really hard. Yeah. Basically, anywhere on the West Coast, really hard to hit. Yeah, West Coast. Espe- especially in Seattle. But. West Coast. Um, <clears throat> so oh, I do remember, uh, going, going turning back to Mookie Betts, I remember one time uh, you and I were uh, – we were we were with the the Fangraphs group, and I think we were at the uh, whatever complex in the Phoenix area houses both the Rangers and I think the Royals. The Prize, yes. Yeah, and we were walking uh, from one sort of half of that complex to the other, and uh, I was just asking you just basic thing, you know, like what sort of player is your favorite player? What sort of players do you like? And you said uh, that you got, enjoy guys who really have all of the skills, uh, and you invoked the name of Andrew McCutcheon. Yeah. Uh, and and, and uh, from Zips, obviously there's, there's more to it than this, but the number one comparable for Mookie Betts is Andrew McCutcheon, uh, Andrew McCutcheon, uh, which was yeah. uh, I don't know if it's a surprising name to see, but uh, I suppose it's instructive in some way. I mean, uh, I think it's you know the number one comp is basically a fun tool because Zips is obviously not just looking at one player and saying this is the expected outcome. It's saying of this family of players. You know, uh, you know, guys with this skill set at this age, this performance level, uh, which one matches the closest to at that point in his career? And McCutcheon, I think, early in his career, you know, was not a seven-win player. He wasn't the MVP that he is now. Uh, McCutcheon, you know, his first three or four years in, in the majors was a nice, above-average, three to four-win player who drew some walks and played decent defense in the outfield and stole some bases and had some power and kind of was across the board this kind of guy. And then he made the leap and he became a monster. He started uh, hitting for more power and, and really become one of the best players in baseball. Zips is not saying uh, that Mookie Betts is going to become Andrew McCutcheon of 2013 or 2014. It's saying, you know, as a 22-year-old, of all the 22-year-olds out there with this kind of skill set, uh, Zips, uh, Betts kind of looks like the 22-year-old version of, of Andrew McCutcheon, which I, I think is pretty reasonable when you look at what McCutcheon did and what Betts has done throughout his minor league career and in his 200 at-bats in the major leagues last year. Yeah, I, I also guess I did not realize how much contact – uh, how much contact McCutcheon was making as a as a young player? I mean, even as a 22 year old, about 500 plate appearances, uh, struck out 17 percent of plate of those plate appearances, and then the next year under 14. Yeah, and I think that's going to be Betts' calling card as well. I mean, this is a guy who controls the strike zone. He's you know very high in zone contact rates. Doesn't swing a pitches out of the strike zone almost at all. Uh, so I think we're going to see Betts be a, you know probably below 15% strikeout guy. And if he can have enough power to get those fear walks, or at least enough of them where he's not just getting grooved meatballs down the middle, and he runs a 9 or 10% walk rate, and then you throw in a 140 or 150 ISO, all of a sudden you have an above-average major league hitter. And if he you know has the speed to be an above-average BABIP guy, now you have you know maybe a 120, 130 uh, WRC plus guy, kind of like what Steamer projects. And you know you you add speed and defense to a 120 or 130 WRC plus, and you have a borderline MVP candidate. Um, one of the, one of the reasons you you wrote this post uh, with regard to a potential trade, the, this would be the Red Sox sending Mookie Betts to Washington in exchange for Steven Strasburg, a trade that you you make very clear is not imminent in any way. Um, but you know, it, 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 uh, but of course the Red Sox do have a bit of a logjam still in the outfield. I mean, insofar as Shane DeVictorino, who when healthy is still a serviceable player, uh, will be a, will be starting the season on the bench probably. Uh, and uh, you know, the, of course, with the signing of Max Scherzer, the, the Nationals have a lot of players. Uh, you say, oh, this is not something that would be uh, the most shocking thing. Um, one of the reasons that such a trade might interest the Red Sox is because. 
Uh, Rick Porcello currently is the number one starter. Uh, but Zips actually likes Porcello in a way that uh, at least was surprising to me. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it certainly made it when I saw the depth chart uh, that you posted on Twitter last night. I was like, man, Zips really loves Rick Porcello with a four-win projection. But it was actually uh, a rounding, a slight rounding issue there, right, where it actually had him as a three-and-a-half win pitcher, which I think last year was a 3-2 as a 25-year-old. Well, you know, going from 3-2 to 3-5 in your mid-20s, not unheard of. Uh, so I think, you know, Zips does like Porcello, certainly, but a little bit more than Steamer. Uh, but it wasn't an outrageous projection. It's basically saying a guy who was a first-round pick who got to the majors very quickly has been extremely durable and has improved over the last couple of years and is showing signs of becoming a better pitcher will get marginally better in the future, which seems reasonable to me. Is there um, uh, is there precedent for a team? Uh, you, you do know that it's not an absolute necessity for a team to have an ace, uh, an ace pitcher, but... Uh, it certainly helps, and it, of course it doesn't hurt in the playoffs either, as you noted yeah. with regard to the Giants and Madison Bumgarner. Uh, I mean, is there precedent for a team winning a World Series? It could be an obvious answer. I'm just not using my brain at the moment um, of a team like that uh, winning the winning the World Series. Uh, there is. If you had sent me that question in advance, I might have done a little bit of research, and I would have like a really good answer for you off the top of my head. Yeah, but but you didn't. I, I didn't know. know. I did not do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I think you know. Teams have won the World Series without aces. Uh, I'm sure of that. Can I name one <laughs> off the top of my head? No. No. Oh, okay. Well, it may be instructive that you can't name one off the top of your head too. It seems. Well, I don't. I don't know that I could name. I mean, I know the Giants have won three of the last five World Series, and their pitching has been really good during that stretch. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think uh, in recent history, teams with aces have won. I don't think that's been the case throughout all of these. You don't think it's a? It's a law. It's not a law. Yeah, and certainly, you know, like, uh, one of the reasons teams get to the playoffs and get to the World Series is because they're good, and teams that are good tend to have aces. So, you know, it's a little bit of a which, which chicken and egg, which one comes first. Like, do you win the World Series because you have an ace, or were you in the World Series because, you know, you're a good team and good teams tend to have good players? Right, so I assume at some level there's an issue of, of producing wins just generally, having players who produce uh, wins above replacement. At what point... At what point does the distribution of those wins become uh, noteworthy, in particular as you know it takes to qualify for the playoffs and then to, to win the World Series? Yeah, I think in October is really when it becomes noteworthy. I think there's a decent amount of evidence that the distribution of wins matters almost not at all in the regular season. Uh, the goal is just to win a bunch of games, and 162 games is the, it's kind of a war of attrition. You need a whole bunch of guys. You need 30 or 35 reasonably productive players, uh, unless you have, like, five superstars. But you need a lot of depth. You need guys to fill in who didn't start the year in the major leagues. Like, you, you need a lot of pieces to get through a 162-game season. And whether your backup shortstop or your number seven starter is producing, it doesn't really matter as long as you get production. In the, in the playoffs, it absolutely matters because you're getting rid of a lot of these fringe pieces. Uh, the off days and the schedule means that you can really lean much more heavily on maybe your seven or eight best pitchers, uh, especially your top three or four, and then your best best reliever, best two relievers. Um, so depth really matters a lot less in October, which isn't shocking news. I mean, I think everyone kind of realizes this. But during the regular season, I think uh, the, you know whether your value comes from your number one starter or your number seven starter is basically irrelevant. Uh, okay, uh, you, you've really almost... Uh, uh... Uh, fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio for the week. Uh, well, that's because you have to go get yelled at by little kids. Yeah, I know. That's true. That's Which is code word for coaching basketball. All right. Yeah. Um, but uh, my my guess is there's probably not a lot of coaching going on and maybe a lot of yelling. Yeah, we don't. We know what we're going to try to do is going to um, going to um, experiment in our next game with pressing off of a missed shot. How do you feel about that? 
Mm, pressing off of a missed shot is hard. Yeah, it is. Pressing off of a maze shot is reasonable. Pressing off of a missed shot is challenging. It is challenging. But we don't necessarily have a lot of guys who create offense. Yeah, so, so I figured, just trying to get as many steals as possible. Right, just turnovers in our half of the court to make yeah. the, to make the actual like play calling on offense. Um, as how is how is the ball handling level of your opponents been? Uh, it's not. That's not strong either. Okay, yeah. so there you go. So, yeah. Like when when no one in the league can dribble, pressing all the time makes sense. Yeah, actually, um, we were down by like twelve or something in a recent game, and we pressed solid for the last six minutes. And I think we yeah. forced turnovers on seventy five percent of uh, inbound balls. Yeah, press on every play then. Yeah, well, we're gonna do it. Plus, the the, the kids are gonna go home exhausted, so the parents will love you. Yeah, well, it is a boarding school, so. Oh. So never mind. Well, their dorm, their <laughs> dorm parents will love them. Yeah, right. Um, the the, the yeah. TA will, will yeah. appreciate it. Um, Rob Manfred is now what officially the commissioner for like 24 hours now. Yeah, 36 maybe yeah. at this point. Yeah. Um, uh, he made a number of comments recently. What to Carl Ravitch? Is that what happened? Uh, yeah, he went on ESPN Sunday conversation and said some stuff. Right, and uh, one of them uh, concerned. Offense, offense is down, and that one possible solution to counter uh, countering that effect is to potentially uh, create some sort of illegal defense, banning shifts, etc. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, right, it was one of those comments that was made as kind of like a, you know, we would like to add some offense into baseball. Maybe this is a way to do it. I don't think it was like a, a proposal that has serious legs, and my guess is that if actually put to the players and the GMs and those with some say in the matter, no one's going to be in favor of yeah. creating an artificial line that says players have to stand to the left of this and to the right of that. You know, one of the what, what I think I did not like about basketball as a youth is that at one point zone defenses were illegal in the NBA. Yeah. But then that was, it was terrible. Silly. It was silly, yeah. Yeah, because there was a call, a legal defense. Yeah. Which, yes. first of all, for a casual fan, may, you're just like, oh, I don't know what that means at all. I don't yeah, know what that I, means. It happened, but I don't know what that means. And then you just think, like, well, why can't they use – why can't they play a zone? And also, if there are three-point shooters anywhere, we'll just hit the three-point shots. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in talking with some casual fans, because most of the ideas Manfred is putting forward is to try and make baseball more accessible to the casual fan. I mean, the hardcore ones like us were hooked no matter what they do. You know, they could add 17 baseballs at a time, and we would still watch. Uh the casual fan might enjoy that as well, actually. That would be a little chaotic. But in general, it seems to me that my casual baseball fan friends just want things that are interesting. They don't care for things that look the same every time. If they can't watch a baseball game and tell it apart from any other baseball game, they're not interested. One of the great things that a lot of my friends like about basketball is you can, you know, watch, uh, you know, I don't know, the Golden State Warriors, who I understand are now quite exciting, uh, shooting millions of threes and running and, you know, playing a style of basketball that is very different than, you know, maybe, I don't know, uh, the New York Knicks, who I guess suck. Oh, they're very uh, bad, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, right, like there's all these different kinds of, basketball being played and depending on your preferences you can watch different styles of the sport and the same is true in football there are teams that are running teams throwing teams defensive teams whatever uh and their games do not look the same based on the kind of strategies and talents they have in baseball i mean you certainly have some teams that are better at hitting than others you have some teams that are better at pitching it but it's not aesthetically obvious which teams are uh, employing a strategy beyond maybe defensive shifts this is like the first thing we've seen that's kind of like very obvious that this team is doing something different I think casual fans like different. They like to be able to say, okay, uh, this is a, a new thing. I don't necessarily know why it's happening, but I want to learn or I'm intrigued because it doesn't look like every other play. To me, to make 
things more similar and say everyone has to play exactly the same makes baseball less interesting, not more interesting. Right. Yeah. Um, here's here's also a thing. I, I guess I'm curious. Is the uh, of course the thing that's really hurting, or not not hurting, but the thing that's affecting offense it seems to be the lack of contact. Is that right? The strike zone is huge. Right. That okay. Is, the strike yeah. zone is big. Um, and there are a lot of strikeouts. There's less offense. Yeah. Is it? Is it? Uh, I don't know. Is there a consensus that this is bad? Because honestly, I don't necessarily think it is. Yeah. So I don't think there is a consensus that it's bad. I think uh, baseball has generally vacillated between something like four and five runs per game uh, throughout most of its history, and that's per team per game. So you know, between eight and ten runs per total game. Uh, and somewhere in there, people have been generally happy. And when it gets under four, they make changes. They lower the mound, they add the DH, whatever. And when it gets over five, they, you know, get rid of steroids. <laughs> they, uh, make changes that way. I think we've seen that, you know, we're trending towards the bottom of the four to five range. I think we're at 4.08 runs per game per team last year. Uh, so we're at the point where people might start to say, huh, this is historically low and this is less than what we're used to. I don't know that it's worse. I mean, I, I think I actually kind of like the style of play, especially when people are talking about length of game. If you want to make the game shorter, you don't want to add more runs. Well, to that's exactly runs. right. Right. If yeah. your concern is length of game, then you don't want it to be to, yeah. there to be more walks. Lower scoring games are shorter. So it's interesting that they're talking about trying to get more offense in baseball at the same time they're trying to shorten the game because those two things fight against each other. Yeah, uh, I'm okay with a you know four and a quarter runs per game uh, kind of average, and I kind of like this style of baseball, but I do recognize that, you know, uh, people do get bored of strikeouts, and I, I think the 1980s style of baseball, which was uh, similar in terms of run scoring, but got reached in a very different way with much more contact uh, and, you know, uh, many fewer strikeouts, is probably a somewhat preferable model of this level of run scoring to the one where everyone strikes out all the time. Oh, but, well... The nice thing, though, is the pitchers now are crazy. They throw so hard. Yeah, right. This is one of the problems, is that pitchers are better than they were 20 years ago. I love uh, watching the pitchers. The pitchers are fantastic. They're magicians. Right. And they're magicians who don't rely on optical. Well, they do. I guess they do rely on optical. Yeah, (laughs) that's that's exactly what they rely on. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, I think, like, uh, pitching is fun for us. I think it's probably a little less fun when you don't. When you can't appreciate, if you're the casual fan, you're not going to watch a slow-motion gif of a slider and say, wow, that was great. If you just see it in real time, you're like, man, why didn't the hitter swing at that? What an idiot. Yeah, what an idiot. But uh, people should watch more slow-motion gifs. Yeah, we try to make them. Yes, we, we do. We, we we give them lots of opportunities. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you watch uh, Matt, remember Matt Harvey? Is he coming back? Where's Matt Harvey yes, right now? He, well, right now he's probably hanging out with like seven women. But uh, yeah, know, yeah gonna... I believe he's in a committed relationship. Oh, really? I, I I do think that's true. I, I think actually he spent some of his time abroad, and I and I'm just mean <laughs> abroad with one woman. Not yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, so I will say, as a major league player, he could be in a committed relationship and still be with seven women. Uh, I'm thinking. Not, you know what? I'm going to think. Not be the first. I'm going to think. Um, I'm going to. What is this? Uh, I'm going to give Matt Harvey with very little evidence. I'm going to give Matt Harvey the benefit of the doubt. He strikes okay. me as good people. Sure. <laughs> I I think as a default, I just assume that every good-looking player making a lot of money is uh, sleeping around. Yeah. Well, that's your own perverted mind, Dave Cameron. Yeah. Let's yeah, end. That's let's, me. Let's end it. Uh, but excellent. <laughs> On excellent that note. Stuff. Excellent stuff, Dave Cameron. I appreciate it. 
Yeah, you're welcome. All right, that has been uh, Dave Cameron, the managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.